God's word this morning from Luke chapter 24, verses 13 through 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. He said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? He said to them, What things? They said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, and when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. They pray for us. Father in heaven, as you know us and as you will, would you have mercy on us this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever wanted to do something over again? So last Sunday, I decided in sort of a budgetary decision to, to groom our dog, ourself, myself. We have a half Australian shepherd, half poodle, mostly poodle, fine hair, very thick coat. And I went after it. About 30 minutes later, mess made. The consensus in the house was she was the best looking sewer rat you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> One of our kids may or may not have cried himself to sleep that night because uh, he saw her. Jada took her to the neighbor's house and said, what do you think? And our neighbor was kind and said, she looks fine. I mean, I wouldn't let my child touch her if I saw her on the street, but. <laughs> so some things we want to do over again because we messed them up and we'd like to redo them. Other things we'd like to do over again because of how great the experience was and there's some attempt in our lives to get that joy back again. And so we'll go to the same place, run the same route, We'll take the same vacation, um, get the same season tickets over and over and over again. If you have young kids, then you know how much they delight in repetition, right? Um, same movies, 
same songs. Uh, Throw me into the pool again, Daddy, for the billionth time. Son, we can't have hot dogs for every meal. There's a study that's been done. You can't live that way, I think. So repetition can be a, a great source of delight, too. But of course, there are other moments that we would love to do over again, to experience again, but it's really hard for us to to find our way back to them. A common example of that in the Bible is the feeling that God is near. An irrefutable sense of his presence, um, his care, his majesty, his holiness, his grace impressed upon our hearts. You know, many of us have tasted that before. We know how to talk about it. But it is a a real struggle to find ourselves back in the place where, as Luke writes about these disciples, our hearts burned within us while he walked with us, while he talked with us on the road. I want to speak briefly this morning about that kind of encore, that kind of repetition, and what it might look like for us to find ourselves back in that place where we know that the transcendent God of heaven and earth, of all things, is not just over us, but is with us, walking with us on our own journeys. Let me set the scene again for you this morning. We're at the end of Luke's gospel. Uh, Luke has been upfront about what his purpose is. It's to, to carefully craft a story, a narrative of what God has done historically in the person of Jesus Christ. And to craft that narrative through eyewitnesses. And so in Luke's gospel, names and places are really important because they offered opportunities for that generation, for those first readers to actually verify what Luke's talking about. You don't believe me? Go ask Cleopas. You don't believe me? Go ask, go ask Mary, right? This is verification. And here we are after the crucifixion of Jesus, and Luke tells us that rumors are beginning to circulate that he is alive. The tomb is empty. And so Luke does what what Luke often does. Names are given in chapters 23 and 24. Joseph of Arimathea, he's a a public figure, member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling class. He's the one that had taken Jesus' body and wrapped it and and laid it in the tomb. And And then Mary Magdalene. And Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, went on Sunday to care for the body as was custom, to anoint it. And they got there, and there's no body. No body. I'm so surprised, were they, that they went back to tell the inner circle, the apostles, and the apostles received the news and said, it sounded like to us an idle tale. That's what Luke records. It sounds like to us fiction, fantasy, an idle tale. Well, those rumors have moved now to a larger body of disciples, among whom is Cleopas and his traveling companion. And they are on their way back from Jerusalem to a little village called Emmaus. And to their eyes, a stranger has joined them on that journey. They share with him the current events. And the current events are that the women said that the tomb was empty. And Peter went to, and guess what? They were telling the truth. So the lesson here is men, always listen to the women that God puts in your life, always. Let's go eat lunch, amen. You know what's really interesting about the scene is that these two disciples, 
are, are meant to be stand-ins or representatives for us. So like us, they haven't seen the resurrected Jesus, at least in their own minds. And like us, they have news in the same way that Luke has given news to us. They have, they have multiple credible eyewitness accounts that the dead Jesus of the cross is now the alive Jesus of the empty tomb. And what is their response? Look at verse 17. They walk together, talking about all these things, all these hopeful things. And what does it say? They look sad. How could they be sad? How could they be sad? Verse 21 tells us, you know, we had hoped that this Jesus was the one to redeem Israel. That's why they're sad. They had followed Jesus, and they had done so with the belief, with the hope that he would be the one to make their dreams come true. For them, it was the hope of the political triumph of their people. But more generally, it's always some version of a hope that has us winning along the way. <laughs> has us flourishing, has us in triumph, prospering. Jesus was supposed to make room for their plans and their hopes. So you can identify with them, how can the resurrection be a moment of cheer when, though Jesus is alive, good and all, he is not seen fit to bend his will to my hopes and dreams. We had hoped he would be the one to, you can fill in the blank this morning. We had hoped he would be the one to answer this prayer, to remove this affliction, to cure me of my own self-doubts and anxieties. We had hoped he would be the one to put us politically on top. And I just want to say a quick word on this this morning as we think about what it's like for our hearts to burn before they ever burn. The Bible normalizes this kind of disappointment in God. The Bible makes it normal for us to feel disappointment in God. This is not the first time that Jesus' disciples have felt disappointed in him. In fact, it happens throughout the Gospels. Jesus' original fan his cousin John the Baptist in the middle of his ministry sends an envoy to go and inquire if he's really the one or if maybe they got it wrong and he's supposed to now look for a different one to come. Peter, for the umpteenth time, is told by Jesus that he's going to suffer and die. And what does Peter say? Not over my dead body. And that's not the script of the Messiah I'm looking for here. Martha. Two different occasions expresses disappointment in Jesus. One kind of passive aggressively, right? Lazarus, her brother, dies. And she goes and meets Jesus and says, basically, I don't think he would have died if you were here a little earlier. He kind of moved a little quicker. The other time is when she's at her house with her sister, and her sister's just sitting there, and she's got all these things to do, and she's serving Jesus, and she says, Jesus, tell my sister to help. Your care for me is not effusive enough. It's not quick enough. The Psalms, the Psalms are an exercise in learning to express disappointment to God in God. 
I just want to say this morning, it's like God is telling us by giving us this space. He's telling us by giving us these recurring examples that if we can't learn to sit with him in the reality of the negative things that we feel, even toward him, if we can't learn to sit with him in the negative things that we feel, even towards him, that it's unlikely that we'll ever cultivate the depth to sit him and to know him and the positive things either, and the joy and gladness and goodness of who he is. I love what Augustine says about this passage in his own commentary. He says, they opened up their despair and they showed the doctor their wounds. You wanna wanna know what it feels like to walk with God or you wanna know what it is to walk humbly with God? It is at some level learning to open up the truth of your inner life and to show the doctor your wounds, to be honest about those wounds. And then we surrender those to him, like these disciples have done. And they let the surgeon go to work with a scalpel of his word. Look what happens next. How does Jesus handle the disappointment? Well, notice that he doesn't just pat them on the back and say, that sounds really hard. I mean, I think he's totally empathetic. He's there with them, right? You know, but there's more going on than just that. He opens the Bible for them. I mean, one question for us this morning is, do we really believe that the Bible, the Bible has a response to this kind of thing for us? Does the Bible really have a response to the things that we feel that are hard in our lives? Well, Jesus thinks it does. He opens the scriptures up to them. And what he does here is he does a survey of the Old Testament. He says he goes through basically the prophets and, and the books of Moses, which is shorthand for the entire Old Testament. And, and what he does is he reinforces that what God is doing right now in their lives is exactly what God has said he would do all along. And every time I read passages like this or passages where Peter's like surprised that Jesus is going to die, <laughs> I always think, how in the world did they miss it? How did, how, did, how did they miss it? You ever think that? Like it's about as clear as he can make it, and yet somehow they miss it. And then if I'm honest, I realize that, I don't know if you're like me, but I, I miss emotional cues and just cues in general <laughs> about relationships and what's going on in a room all the time. So I've used this example before, but when our first child was born, as soon as the delivery was over, and it was a long, painful, anxious delivery, the first thing that I said to Jada was, sweetheart, I am exhausted. I need to go sit down for a while. And you laugh because that is stupid. It's stupid. Like, how do, you, how do you do that? Like, what, what's going through your mind to make you think that in that moment you're the center of that occasion? You know? Why was I so thick-headed and insensitive? Why did the disciples miss it? Here's why. See, I have a bias that says life is about me. I have a bias that says life is about me. Evolutionary biologists call it a survival instinct. <laughs> Right? The Bible calls it self-centeredness, sin. And as a result, we all tend to do this. We read people, we read situations, we read our city, 
We read the political climate. We read everything around us, including the Bible, including God's activity, from the perspective of us at the center. That's what the disciples have done. And the way that Jesus corrects all this is to help them to know God's word, not with themselves and them winning at the center, but with the suffering servant and the triumphant king at the center of what God is doing in every story and chapter and verse. And all of a sudden, they have to rearrange their imaginations to fit him instead of asking him to rearrange his mission to fit them. It's a story that um, one of our Bible study leaders, Kay Gabrish, told that stands out to me still. She said, you know, um, if someone gave you a Monet, some valuable painting, let's say the original Water Lilies, someone just gave that to you, it was yours by possession, the one thing you wouldn't do is you wouldn't go look for a frame that you had in your attic and cut that painting down to fit your frame. No, you would go find a frame that fit the treasure that you, had for, that, you, that you possessed. This is what we need so badly. It is the right frame to fit the fullness of who Jesus is instead of cutting him down and trying to make him fit into our own personal hopes and dreams. And the way to get that frame, the way that Jesus gives that frame is to read the word of God with him at the center. And we don't have time to explore that this morning, but it's not just the scriptures that correct and nurture us in our disappointment. It is also the presence of Jesus. You notice this? In the breaking of the bread. Those are the two things. It's what we celebrate as a sacrament of the Lord's Supper. So somewhere in the middle of the passage, Jesus looks like he's going to go on, and they say, no, stay with us. And then the language that Luke uses here is the exact language used for the Last Supper. It's a meal in which Jesus takes bread and he blesses it and he breaks it and he gives it to his disciples and all of a sudden in the taking of that meal, their eyes are opened and they realize the one who is with them, who has been with them all along. If we return to the question this morning, you know, what do you do when it's hard to find the way back? to the point in your life where your heart burns for the things of God. What do you, where do you go? What is the action plan? What is the strategy? What is the thing that you have to do? Let me tell you, it has been the same since the Garden of Eden. It is God's word and God's meal. In the Garden, God puts Adam and Eve in there, and what does he do? He speaks to them and he says, what? Look at all this stuff I've given you to eat. All this stuff that's good and pleasing to eat. Throughout the Old Testament, it is his word. It's a feast. It is word and sacrament, word and table, word and meal, over and over and over again. Over again, like a child who delights in repetition. This is what we're called to do. It never changes. There's no novelty. The Bible promises that as we, as we listen to God's word with Jesus at the center, as we are with him together with the meal that that even though we bear the burden of disappointment in him, that at some point in that process lies the rediscovery that though you may not have sensed that Jesus is with you, 
You may not have sensed that God's presence is, is palpable and with you, that he really is there. He's been with you all along, walking with you, listening to you in all the ordinary roads of your daily life. Friends, I'll close here. There's no other place in the New Testament where this idiom occurs. The idiom of our hearts burning within us. There's, that's the only, this is the only place in the New Testament where that occurs. There are, however, three times in the Old Testament where this idiom occurs. The equivalent in the Hebrew occurs. Three times. The first is when Joseph sees his brother Benjamin after not seeing him for 20 years. So you may or may not know the story, but Joseph is sold by his other brothers into slavery. He rises to a powerful position in Egypt, and his brothers have to go to Egypt looking for food in the midst of this terrible famine, and Joseph receives them. And he says, you know, we'll help you out, but you gotta, go, you, gotta, you gotta bring Benjamin back to me first. They don't sort of recognize him either. And they bring Benjamin back, and guess what happens? Joseph sees him, and the Bible says that his heart burned for him. And immediately he has to, he has to leave the room to go and weep. Older brother to younger brother. The second occasion is when King Solomon has this really strange dispute to settle. So, so two women are brought to the king because they both claim the same child, to be the mother of the same child. No DNA testing, right? Uh, there's no witnesses. And so Solomon devises his own test. He says, okay, we'll cut the baby in half. Each one can you have half. And he does this knowing that the true mother is not going to let that happen. She'd really give up her son than to allow that to happen. And so the Bible says that the true mother's heart burned for her son. And she told the king to give him to the other woman, parent to child. And finally, in the book of Hosea, it's a book where God associates his passion for his people with the fight that a husband, a faithful husband, would have for a bride who no longer wants him. And in chapter 11, the Lord says that though his people are bent on turning away from him, though they are interested in severing their relationship he cannot bring himself to let it happen. God says, how can I give you up? My heart recoils within me. My heart burns and is tender. So three times. Older brother to younger brother. Parent to child. Husband to bride. Friends, do you know that these are all the very images the very metaphors that God himself uses to describe the way that he feels about you. The gospel tells us this morning that we don't live under the eye of an emotionally detached, distant dictator. We live with the God who is our father, who would give up his own son in sacrifice to have us, who would give us a true older brother who would weep over us, who would do all of this to win back a faithless bride to himself for a wedding ceremony one day. Because whether we feel close to him or not, whether our hearts burn for him or not, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus is confirmation that we live with a God whose heart always, always, always burns for us. You know, one of the great encouragements of the passage is that Jesus does not show up when they get their hearts right. He doesn't show up when they get their hearts right. 
He's been there all along. In spite of their doubts, in spite of their ability to see him and to feel him, the doctor was there for them to open up and see their wounds. He was there for them to surgically care for those wounds in meal and in word, in his person and in his passion. He was there to reset their hopes, not on the triumph of their own dreams, but on the triumph of God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The early church father, Father Origen, asked the question, where will your burning come from? What coals of fire will be found in you? Where will your burning come from? And the presumed answer is, uh, from nowhere that will last, made by your own hands, it will only be the one who was sent for you. We had hoped he would be the one to fill in the blank. If you can say we had hoped he would be the one to live and to die and be raised again and to reign for me, to pour out his grace upon me, then I can promise you this morning you will not be disappointed. He has come to do that and will do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning, your love for us. Thank you for the promise of the gospel. We ask that our hearts would burn, that like these disciples, our feet would move swiftly, but if not, Father, for the courage and faith to believe that you are with us, though we don't see you. Um, God, we pray that you'd reset our hope. Help us to love you, to trust you. In Christ's name, amen.